this is my 13th 13th or 14th record um yeah and you know it, it's funny like though there's been several before this it's it's literally different every time a record comes out in particular for maybe the last uh 12 to 15 years it just seems like what is required to try and successfully put out a, a record um is you know it's just different obligations every time the things that you had to do the previous release now no longer work or those things are out of business or you know have gone the way of myspace or what have you and now that now all the videos have to be you know the long way up instead of landscape you know and it's uh it's hard to keep up with thankfully i have a, a small team of people here to kind of uh you know, keep me uh, in the loop and let me know, you know, what's important and what's not. Sure. And I hate to break it to you, but MySpace was like 20 years ago now. <laughs> I know. I know I'm dating myself, but you know, I, I wonder where Tom went. But this is not your first release during the pandemic, or is it? Well, I released a record in March of 2020. That doesn't really count. It was it was right on the edge of it. Um and it was kind of in a, in the sweet spot in a way. All the promotion was had kind of a lot of it had happened up to that point. And when the record was released, people had you know heard a bunch of the advanced singles. And then in those you know dizzying first several weeks of the pandemic, everyone was like, "Hey, let's just stay home and stream things and you know watch and listen to everything." And so I actually feel like a, a that record was really heard maybe more uh, than it might've been if, you know, the world was operating as normal, but I didn't get to tour it. Um, and what that meant, you know, when you tour a recorded work, the songs evolve, they take on new meanings, they take on new arrangements, the phrasing changes it, they really become almost kind of collaborative uh nightly you know kind of happenings with with the audience right and the venue and how you're feeling it, it all kind of combines to make this living breathing thing out of the song and that is just a magical part of the whole process for me i love that and to be cut off from that was deeply unmooring <laughs> for me um I wasn't prepared for that. I mean, it was, it was bad enough when all the gigs went away just from an economic perspective, but to be cut off from sharing the songs with people live and being able to, to, to kind of see them. That really was like the final step in the circuit for me. And it felt like something had really been interrupted with that. I like this idea of music of songs sort of taking on a, a second life after they're on record and you know certainly the interchange with the audience is, is a big part of that but that that also that also factors in quite a bit before they actually go down on record right i mean there, there's a sense in which you're really working through them in front of an audience and 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 they're evolving before you ever get them down absolutely yep that happens too um yeah that's it. for some reason the process feels different to me that the that the pre-evolution, the pre-recording evolution, then the post-recording evolution. I actually never really thought about that before, because you're right. They do you do tend to perform them, you know, a bunch before you actually take them into the studio, so that you can head into the studio actually, you know, having learned them. <laughs> um, 
And, uh, you know, because for an artist like me, when I recorded Blindsided, which was the record in 2020, you know, I was, I had like four days in the studio, which was luxurious for me. That was probably twice as long as I normally had. And I'm, I'm getting everybody in the studio and I'm hitting record and we're capturing that moment of everybody playing the song simultaneously because that's really what there's a budget to do. You know, uh, there's not a really a budget, frankly, to camp out in a studio for a month and have the drummer lay down his parts. And then, you know, effectively recording live in the studio. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that was very different from the way that I ended up recording, uh, lay your darkness down which is this record that's that's coming out um which was was done during the pandemic uh, when i had nothing but time <laughs> and just me so i there was there was no drummer to play with if i wanted to if i wanted to hear something i had to play it myself it's a double-edged sword though right having all the time in the world it's like they um it's that twilight zone where the guy uh steps on his glasses at the end <laughs> as if it meant time to read his books <laughs> yeah, you know, in my case, it was a re- it was really a necessity. I in the past I had been very nervous about spending too much time uh overthinking anything in the studio, right? It was all about, you know, the absence of conscious thought. Let's just, you know, do some preparation ahead of time, like we were talking about, and then but we're when we're in the studio, we're not thinking about anything. But this time, um I had to make the record in a different way because I was, I was, I needed to prove to myself that I could do it alone, not just because it was a pandemic, but because I had been recently diagnosed with a degenerative eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa. Um, and that happened in the fall of 2020. And in the, the aftermath of that, I, you know, kind of descended pretty quickly into, you know, catastrophic thinking. You know, um, retinitis pigmentosa, RP, you start losing your peripheral vision and then, uh, and your night vision. And then it progresses over in an unpredictable, um, timeline to, you know, legal blindness, some cases even, even worse. Um, and so I thought, okay, I've got RP. I'm, I'm going to be housebound. Like I'm not going to be able to go to, a strange recording studio, you know, across the country and navigate a cramped room filled with expensive gear. Like, how am I going to, how am I going to do my job? Like you're saying that with regard to the immediate record, I mean, cause it, you know, it sounds like, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's a horrible thing to go through, but it sounds like you would at very least have some time left before you, you know, while you've still got all those faculties. I do. Yeah. But you know, that's the, the shock of the diagnosis kind of sent me into this overcorrection, you know, where it was like, I just want to envision and try and figure out a way to control for the worst case, you know, scenario now, um, so that it won't sideline me and, uh, you know, really, you know, I rob it of its power essentially. Um, you know, so I came down here to the to the basement and I started, th- you know, trying to figure out how one makes a recording that sounds like music that doesn't just sound like someone stiffly, rec- you know, overdubbing to themselves over and over again. And um, in that pursuit, the the production style of Jeff Lynn was a real guiding light because, as I understand it, that's the way that he records. Um, it's not like uh, 
he's sitting there playing like a full drum kit and like looping things. He's like playing the kick drum and then he's recording the snare drum. You're talking about him recording his own because I, I tend to think of him as being this really, I don't want to say overproduced, but really well produced, you know, in, in bo- both with ELO and then, you know, obviously like some of the petty stuff, like the, these really, these big ornate productions in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, in the case of like Full Moon Fever, you know, it sounds like a band playing, but it is not a band playing live as I understand it. And um the fact that you that I could never really tell that uh gave me hope that it was like possible. Um you know, I'm no Jeff Lynn, <laughs> but I had a lot of time to kind of try and see if I could get halfway decent at it. And you know, the first few songs that I did, um I was not decent at it. Uh, well, I was decent, but it, it, it didn't sound like music to me. It sounded like someone experimenting. And I remember the first time that it, uh, I listened back to a track and was like thinking, I was thinking about the, the impact of the, the emotional impact of the song. It was, I was really getting moved. It was, you know, stirring and I wasn't at all thinking about, you know, gosh, I wish I had the mic a little closer to the kick drum or, should I have used a different, you know, guitar for that part? I was just thinking about the emotional impact of the music. And, and it was a moment of proof of concept, you know, where I was like, okay, I can do this by myself down here in the basement. And from then on, I was recording down here every day, basically by myself, convinced that I could do it alone. And, um, as I got, you know, further and further away from my diagnosis, I, I kind of, was able to free myself a little bit from that catastrophic thinking where I realized I'm not actually alone. First of all, I'm surrounded in this house by people that love me. (laughs) Couldn't be alone if you wanted to be. No, no. And, um, you know, I was reaching out to friends on the phone and, you know, online and everyone was just, just supportive and loving to a person. And, um, I realized that like, okay, I could do things alone, but I wasn't alone and I didn't have to to do things alone. And so as I got deeper and deeper into the project, I started to entertain the idea of what it might look like to bring in, say, my rhythm section to redo my bass and redo my drums. And I was just nervous that it was going to be like, you know, painting one one wall or one room of your house, right? Like you paint one room and then all the other rooms look like crap and you have to paint those. So, uh but I gave it a shot. I brought I brought um, the the drummer and the bass player into a studio near here, and um, they crushed it. It was like it was so great. It was just like adding a little bit of organic kind of feel to to the tracks, just the right amount. And then some friends came in with some harmony vocals. My co-writers, people like Anthony DeCosta and Laurie McKenna, uh, came in and added some harmonies and guitars and stuff. Uh, uh, you know, in the in the final moments, so. It was. It ended up kind of being a little bit of a communal effort, but you know, for the first nine or ten months, it was just me in this incredibly tiny room trying to rock. <laughs> this idea of it sort of suddenly sounding like music is is interesting to me because I know I'm not a musician, but I'm you know I'm a writer and I I, I podcast obviously. I I know that to a fault, I'm hypercritical of the things that I do. And that it's that it's impossible for me to really divorce myself of of some of those elements. And even if I feel like something is good, that I'm invariably going to pick out the things that I could have done differently or the things that I did wrong. 
Yeah, that internal critic is is uh, is real, and um, you know, I think it it's even that voice has a chance to kind of bloom and and get louder in isolation, right? You know, and and of course, we had nothing but isolation at that point. So, I don't really know what kept me from succumbing to that. Uh, I guess I've just done so many records singing live in the studio. Uh, I didn't feel like I had anything to prove by doing another record that way. And again, you know, some of my favorite producers, uh, Jeff Lynn, uh, John Leventhal, these are guys that are not, you know, they've done live performances, I imagine, in the studio, but they're they're kind of known for not working that way. And I love their records. So I just thought, you know, I got to be able to figure this out. I, I, I hate to make it sound like I, I'm, I'm comparing myself to them, but I just, I knew it was possible. And I thought like, okay, I've, I've done this a few times now. Like maybe we can figure out a new way for me to approach it. Sure. Doing so in, in a certain sense with dramatically fewer resources. I mean, I assume that anything that Jeff Lynn was producing in the eighties, certainly like we're talking like millions of dollar budgets there, but inversely, um, just so many tools available to you now that just like absolutely, even with the highest budget in the world, weren't available to you 40 years ago. Yeah. You know, I only have two channels here, which is not a lot. <laughs> so I I couldn't really do a properly like modernly mic'd drum kit, you know, full drum kit sound if, if I tried. I have two mics, you know. Um, but I think a really interesting thing happens in any creative endeavor when you kind of lean into the constraints, you know, if if it's possible to do anything and you have infinite resources, infinite money, infinite time. I mean, there's, there's any number of rock and roll, you know, biographies that detail the excesses that, that come into play when that happens. And in some cases, people literally, you know, driving themselves mad trying to find that perfect yeah. sound. Absolutely. Right. I mean, my idea for the recording of, of Lay Your Darkness Down was to get, ironically, I was more in control of it and I was less precious about it. I have all the mics. I don't have a ton of mics, but I got, you know, a half dozen mics here set up, ready to go. Everything's basically at an arm's length, you know? Um, even if I was blind, which I'm not yet, uh, I could I could navigate the studio pretty easily it's just a couple of things that need to get, you know, shifted into place. And I'm five minutes away from, you know, between a musical idea and recording. So I really wanted to kind of, that was another way I kind of outran my, uh, or short circuited my internal critic. I just was able to kind of move very quickly from, you know, the, the inspiration to the actual, you know, recording of that inspiration. And uh, I, so in that way, I, I could kind of move a little bit faster than that voice that was like, yeah, should you do that? You know, it's like, screw it, we're doing it. And there it is. And it sounds great. <laughs> if you're able to sort of go back and, and talk to the version of yourself in the process of really workshopping those early days and, and trying to figure out, I guess, you know, what, what a sound, what a song or what music sounded like. Is there a secret? Is there a shortcut? Is there like a real differentiator between something that sounds like a song on record and something that doesn't? Well, I mean, it's not, ironically, a lot of the lessons that I kind of 
picked up over the years of working in uh, amazing recording studios with really talented engineers, they they kind of started to come back. Uh, and uh, you know, it was like those engineers are whispering in my in my ear, like, "Hey, you know, even though you're trying to um, do something that's in time and uh, consistent, don't don't just like line everything up by sight. You know, you have to actually like close your eyes and listen. Does it sound like music? Like just because you snap everything to the grid, that does that does not mean that's how humans play music. You know." Um, and so you had to really kind of make room in the process for feel, right? So some things I would loop and uh, have it a consistent, you know, interval. Some things uh, like the kick drum I would loop usually, but some things like the hi-hat would kind of play, you know, in and around the beat. Sometimes I'd be on top of the beat. Sometimes I would be behind the beat. Sometimes I'd be right on it miraculously. And it turns out that's kind of how humans make music you know i actually went back to some old recording sessions of of you know sessions that i knew were recorded live tracked live and just kind of looked where every you know where all the accents kind of fell in relation to the beat and it's all over the place you know very rarely is ever is the guitar you know downbeat lining up with the kick drum and the you know the piano chord and the it's all over the place. And yet when you listen to it as a performance, it sounds human and soulful and and beautiful. And, you know, you just have to kind of forgive yourself a little bit. And, uh, you know, I was at a pretty low spot uh, emotionally. So I I wasn't, uh, I didn't really thankfully have a lot of uh, energy left to kind of beat myself up about it. I was just like giving myself complete permission to experiment and try and find a new way of doing things it's something that is at once both magical about music but art generally but also frustrating at the same time is that that kind of ineffable quality that you're describing you know that that there is that there is no that there there, that there is no science that goes into it and and that there is no perfect way to do it that's partially liberating but at the same time like can be incredibly frustrating because it's really hard to nail down why something works. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, the recording process became like this spiritual practice in a way. It helped keep me in the moment. You know, as long as I was just utterly focused on kind of having fun, you know, playing around in this playground I have down here. Like you said, this wouldn't have been possible even when I started, you know, 23, 24 years ago. I, this, this, all this gear was too much to, to have. And I don't even have that much gear. Now, now there's a little bit of, uh, of stuff down here and I can kind of just have fun with it. And yeah, I was feeling so low and so uncertain about everything that I was just determined to to have fun <laughs> and to try and find some joy. And if I couldn't play live, which is my normal source of uh, my normal go to for joy, then I had to try and find it, you know, recording down here. And well, I did. I, I, you know, I, I I was saying to someone the other day, I I made twelve records that were exactly the records that I wanted to make. 
there was never any record company telling me like you can't do this if i wanted to make a record of western swing i got a bunch of great musicians that played that kind of music and we made a record of western swing you know if i wanted to do a record of murder ballads with a buddy we got together and we did it and i it, there was no second thought to uh, the commerciality or you know like should we do this it was just like i want to do this i'm doing it this is the first record that i ever kind of needed to make and i needed to make it in this way i needed to to clearly needed to prove something to myself that that while i was grieving one version of what i thought my life was going to be that i didn't have to grieve everything that not not everything was was needed to change per se you know that that music was still possible and i needed to prove that to myself by being able to do it independently completely independently and uh i think it was a big part of the the start of the healing process i i i won't say that i'm like doing amazing all the time i i i'm not but i'm clearly oriented in a more positive and hopeful direction than i was in in the the days after my diagnosis honestly i think part of the healing process is the acknowledgement that you'll never fully be healed and that there there will always be moments where where it is difficult and, and accepting that yeah absolutely and you know i think when you get a diagnosis like like this and it and it doesn't have to be you know it can be any number of things but it kind of clues you in uh to the reality that it was it was always tenuous it was always just kind of like a miracle that anything really works you know you, you mean your health or yeah, i mean kind of the world like, how do we drive on a highway and not, you know, like have wrecks all the time? Like, how do how do cells work? I mean, it's amazing. All these little different, different. I mean, you're on the way to writing a They Might Be Giants song. Yeah, right. I know, right? Well, it's, I mean, there's a song on the record called Sense of Wonder that kind of, that kind of explores this just sheer awe with, with the world and kind of not really taking it for granted, you know? And um, I think I probably, all, I, I took my sight for granted. I was always going to have it. And because of that, I was always going to live a certain kind of life. And um, once I kind of realized that I was slowly losing it, um, you know, I, I, I really grieved the life that I thought I was going to have for a while. But, but then it gradually dawned on me that like, that life that I thought I was going to have was never a given. It's not a give. Nothing is really a given for any of us. And it's, that's a hard reality to confront. Sometimes you have to just put that aside to just get through your day. Otherwise no one would really ever want to cross a street, <laughs> but it does, it did help inform, you know, my, my process for this record. It helped me kind of sit with the vulnerability, um, a little bit more comfortably. What does it mean to not take it for granted? Well, I mean, it sounds corny, but there's a song on the record called You're Gonna Wanna Remember This. And um, of course, you can't really remember what you weren't paying attention to at one point in time, right? And um, I find myself constantly surrounded by um, 
images or sites that I am sure that someday I'm not going to be able to see. And I, I have, I constantly, constantly tell myself, like, remember this, like, look at that, look at the way the light is leaving the sky. Look at that smile that your dog is giving you. Like, look at your son up at bat on the baseball diamond. Like, these are miraculous events full of love and wonder. And I mean, yes, there's, there's things that I miss, you know, if I'm, I I don't want to like, I can't overemphasize the paying attention thing. I'll come home from the grocery store, you know, and forget something. It's like, Oh, Mr. Pay attention, forgot the milk. You know, it's like things slip through the net, but it's a human experience. Yeah. But you know, the, I think it's just the process of trying to ascribe intentionality to the things that we kind of do on autopilot, you know, obviously like a buzz phrase right now, but you're talking about mindfulness. Yeah, I, I am, which, you know, I'd like to say, Oh, I I have this, you know, meditation practice. Uh, and I tried that in the pandemic. I, I didn't, I did it for a while. It helped, but it didn't stick. Um, I might go back to it, you know? I mean, it's kind of like the, my relationship to meditation is kind of like what they say, you know, can happen during meditation. Like you might catch your mind drifting, note it, and then, you know, kind of rededicate yourself. It's like, that's happening in my life too. Um, but yeah, mind, mindfulness is is uh, is hot right now, and man, I think it'd, it'd be a better world if if that could really you know catch on. I say this knowing that this is in no way comparable, but at the beginning of the pandemic, I was dealing with some help. I, I had Bell's palsy. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, I am. And it's facial facial paralysis. Um, alarming. A big bummer, but you know, uh, uh, most people, I you know, I've mostly gotten over, and most people get over. It doesn't stick with you necessarily forever, but, um, you know, it, it certainly woke me, it woke me up to a lot of things that I knew on the face of it and, and seemed really obvious at the time, but are, are different once you really connect to them and it really like in a really meaningful way. Um, one of them is just, and I think you can probably relate to this as well as anybody can. It's just that the feeling of losing control over something that you've had such tight control over your entire life. I mean, that in and of, of itself is just completely terrifying. Yeah, it is. Um, again, sometimes you lose control over something and it dawns on you, you know, what folly thinking that you had control over it in the first place. In a very limited way, you, you did. Sure. Certainly, like in my specific case, like I could move my facial muscles and then one day I suddenly couldn't. And it's just, it's so frustrating that there's just some disconnect there. There's just some reason why things all of a sudden aren't working out the way that, that, that they used to. And, and that like, you know, I've been a fairly healthy person my entire life. I don't know if you're the same, but you know, I, I haven't had any major health issues and you hear about people going through, through health issues and you're able to be sympathetic and you're probably able to be empathetic toward it. But like, it's a very different experience when you're finally confronted with it yourself. And when, you know, you've got people in your life to help out with it, but, but there are some very real ways in which like you kind of 
are alone on that journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I wish we didn't have to walk a mile in, in someone else's shoes to kind of, you know, really feel, feel their situation and kind of, you know, have empathy and compassion for them. But, you know, I think sometimes you do, or sometimes you do to at least be even better at that, at, at that process. Um, one of the things that I've had trouble with, and it's, it's a simple thing, but, um, I have always joked about how much I love playing catch with my boys, like baseball, football, whatever. Um, it, when we were looking for our house, it was like, I would always be like, ah, we can't play catch in the backyard. It's not big enough. We need, we got to find a better place and we need a hundred yards at the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, we have it, we have this, this, this wonderful yard out there, but it's very shady. And on a summer day, there's a lot of like filtered light through the trees, a lot of dappling going on. And I have a really hard time playing catch with my sons. So that that's already something that right now that the, the distinction between light and dark is already difficult. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it is, it's, it's so difficult that I, I don't drive at night anymore. Um, and you know, I have pretty good vision in daylight con- conditions with my glasses on, but the the kind of sinister thing about RP and the night blindness is just how contextual it is. So I could be fine driving during the day, and I still do dr- drive during the day a lot of the time, but um, if I turn down a tree-lined street, or if I'm on a route that I don't know has a tunnel, and I have to go down into the tunnel, and the tunnel isn't lit well enough... All of a sudden, I'm in trouble. That's real physical danger. Yeah. And, you know, not just for me. I mean, God forbid I hurt someone else, you know? I mean, I I couldn't live with myself. So I, I do have to really think about that sort of thing, you know, a lot more than I than I once did. But, you know, that loss of, of just being able to go out in the backyard and throw the ball around and talk about things, you know, trick trick the boys into talking about things they might not want to talk about, you know, if they weren't, you know, bi- busy, you know, doing something else. Such as? Well, you know, if you're just like riding in a car with with teenagers, it's kind of hard to get them to talk about anything, right? You're not talking necessarily like super deep conversations, but just engaging no. with them on any Yeah, level. just engaging. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, that kind of thing. I don't even know how we got on this topic, but that, that kind of thing is a, is a real a real loss uh, that I feel. And um, I don't really quite know, know what to do with that other than just to try and find different ways to engage, you know? Um, I guess that's something we always have to do, but uh, you know, I've definitely seen a hard stop with some of the things that I used to, you know, think, well, this is what I do, you know, <laughs> I, I can't do it anymore, you know, and it is, it is what it is. One of the other main things for me personally that came out of all of this, and you alluded to this a little bit before, um, was I've had periods in my life that I, I've, I've gone through depression before, certainly, you know, often tied to something external, probably only once before 2020 had I ever gone through like a real, what felt like a real deep depression happened again you know obviously like 
health stuff, but also just the pandemic and everything, you know, everything else, like things, things compile pretty quickly. And then things also spiral pretty quickly when it comes to depression. I mean, I know that for me, a lot of that depression that I was going through in in 2020 was, do do you know the term anhedonia? Yes, uh, I do, but I'm, I'm blanking right now. It's a symptom of depression, of severe like depression. You can't feel where, pleasure, right? Is that it? Yeah, where where the, yeah. it's well specifically the things that you enjoyed, you can't anymore. So like, for me, that was music. It's music with a lot of people. Like, I, there was just a long stretch where I couldn't listen to music, and I kind of had to mm. wean myself back into it. Depression spirals so quickly. I can't imagine that. Um, I mean, I, I've I have felt depression uh, in the past. It's anxiety is probably more my. Oh yeah, no, I I got that too. <laughs> but but that, that that's more of an ongoing thing for me. This yeah, was yeah, a little yeah. more um episodic, you know, circumstantial, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's I mean I do have experience with with others in my life with depression and it is it's an insidious thing. But you I mean you said you were obviously and understandably that you were going through a depressive period. Yeah, clearly. Um and you know, I kind of got help for it. Uh I mean, I definitely you know, was trying meditation. I tried, I wasn't exercising at the time because of the pandemic, but I started exercising again and that helped a little bit. The meditation helped a little bit, but you know, ultimately this, this was the, 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 this convergence of context and uh, what was going on in my life, you know, kind of finally drove me to actual professional therapy. And um man, what a what a gift that was it's uh that that did and does really help um kind of with the acute periods and and kind of helps you know with kind of maintaining um you know just maintaining mental health it's like exercising your emotions therapy knowing what you know and having not only gone through the actual the process of well, i guess processing this but also you know speaking to professional is there any advice that you feel like you could have given to yourself in those first couple of days or weeks that would have been useful? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the catastrophic thinking, you know, just kind of immediately gaming out. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. I mean, that's, I think that's a normal uh, response to emotional trauma. Um, and I don't know if I would have, if it would have helped to say like what you're feeling right now is, is normal and it won't always feel this way. Um, but you're absolutely feeling it right now. And that is, that is a normal thing. Um, it felt like a fundamental change at the time. It felt like it was one way. And now all of a sudden it is this way irrevocably. And, you know, I guess it would have been nice to know that it wasn't. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, heard some podcasts and read some books and, you know, all that stuff where people would say, uh, people with disabilities would, would say, you know, like, well, now I'm, I'm grateful for my disability, you know, for reason X, Y, or Z, you know, and, uh, this kind of like, Embracing of a, of a disability as a way of, of, uh, reclaiming agency. And, you know, I, I'm, I understand what they're saying and I'm, and I'm happy for them. I, that, 
for me is not the, the case. I wouldn't use that word. Certainly not now, but it sounds like you're open to things yeah, evolving. Maybe, maybe someday, you know, but uh, for me, it, it did kind of start me down the road on this, on this record. And, you know, this, it's not a record about blindness, right? Like I don't, I don't want people to think like, I'm going to listen to this record about this guy going blind, that, that the blind blindness those words are not on the record they're not in these songs they're in some of my other ironically songs. you released a, an album <laughs> yeah. with blind in the title before yeah. this all happened yeah yeah you know it i know it's crazy that i think sometimes the songs get there before you do maybe but um it, so that it's not a the layer darkness down is not it's not a record about blindness but it is a record uh, full of songs that I'd, i are written from a perspective that i don't know if i could have uh, accessed if I wasn't losing my sight. And, you know, again, I, I think as a songwriter and a musician, your empathy, observation, compassion, I mean, these are your tools for writing songs, you know? The songwriting, it's it's more than just like, well, these chords sound good together and this rhyme scheme is particularly clever. Like, that stuff doesn't make a song come alive right it's it's the beating heart at the center of the song that kind of really makes people kind of connect with it and i do feel like those those skills um maybe not the observation is a separate <laughs> a separate story but the compassion and the empathy that those that's really been kind of supercharged by by my experience in the you know post diagnosis if only because when I decided that I had to be very open about it because it was going to change the way that I approached my job physically and it was starting to creep into my art and I didn't, couldn't figure out a way to kind of present that, uh, that art without acknowledging the elephant in the room. But when I decided to be open and honest about it, the immediate effect, uh, after people supporting me and, and, in sending love my way was sharing their own experience with disability and with, you know, health hardships or what, you know, what have you, mental health, physical health. And it was, it was overwhelming. I mean, it was like, it just started to feel like we're all struggling with something like almost, you know, almost to a person or someone that we, or someone we love is struggling and we're all trying to figure out a way to carry that forward and live our lives. And man, when you start to look at the world through that lens, there's like this beautiful tenderness that kind of sets in. And sometimes you can even access it when, you know, someone like cuts you off <laughs> on the highway or something. You can be like, or when, you know, you you interact with like someone in the service industry that's not nice to you. And you're like, well, they're, who knows what they're dealing with, right? You don't know. Especially for me, you know, RP and blindness at the stage where I am now, it's an invisible disability. You can't see that I'm struggling with this. I don't use a cane. Um, I don't have to. Someday I probably will. But um, right now, if I don't tell someone, they don't know. And there's other things like depression and, and mental health stuff for sure that you don't know. You can't see. And um, it's just helped me be a little bit softer. More compassionate. Yeah, with other people and hopefully with myself. You use the phrase 
creep into my art to describe the impact that the condition had on, you know, I, I, I'm guessing the music that you make, but even prior to, as you said, acknowledging it, what, what does it mean that it was creeping into your art? Well, I mean, it's crazy. The, some of the song, the songs on Lay Your Darkness Down were written over a span of time that, that spans my diagnosis. Some of them were written pre-diagnosis and some of them were written, you know, post-diagnosis and they all seem to really work in their own way around that that fulcrum point of 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 getting diagnosed and it's amazing to me a song like uh up against the night which is when i wrote it it was several years ago i was kind of thinking about that phrase as a metaphor for the kind of doubts the existential doubts you you start to encounter and wrestle with in mid midlife right and then cut to being diagnosed with RP and having intense night blindness and getting really anxious uh, in, after I was diagnosed as the sun went down. I would, you know, I would get short with people. I would get, get nervous and, and anxious about like, well, I have to do this. You know, once the sun goes down, I, I need to be where I'm safe. Where are all my loved ones? Are they safe? Because I can't go and get them. Once the sun goes down, I was just really lost in, in, uh, in that. And I felt like I was like literally up against the night. So here I was like writing a metaphor and now I'm like living it literally. And I had no idea at the time when I wrote that song that it would change meanings for me like that. So I don't know, you know, sometimes the songs seem to get there before my conscious thought does. Um, and then also, of course, you know, a lot of the loss that I was feeling and the grief that I was feeling over um, the the effects on the, of the pandemic on my career, it already kind of oriented me, you know, in the, in the mindset of loss and grieving. And then when I got my RP diagnosis, I was like, all right, well, we'll just add it to the pile. <laughs> and uh, in some ways that was, that was helpful. You know, I, I'm, I do, I am grateful that I was diagnosed when I was because, um, you know, I didn't get my diagnosis and then have to go out on the road that weekend. You know, I, I had time to process it and we really had time to kind of go through kind of some of the, the less, less pretty parts of, of the grief process. And we tend to forget this because of like how existential the, pandemic has felt that things were kind of bad before that you know that it, that it's really just like even before all that happened it's been a it was a it was already a rough few years so there there's already a ton of stuff to process prior to the pandemic and then prior to you dealing with your own health issues absolutely i mean this is this is kind of what i was getting at before where you have these these events or these moments where the veil is lifted and you realize like oh it's kind of always been thus I just carried on, you know, merrily. <laughs> We're evolved to compartmentalize. Sure, it's. A, I mean, it was a, an evolutionary strategy at at one point. It it sometimes still is. Um, but you know, there's there's a lot of work to do here, and it's 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 kind of nice when we can finally at least acknowledge the problem um, that exists. You know, the problems that we're that we're faced with. 
when I was on stage, you know, kind of doing these outdoor distance performances during the pandemic, I had this little spiel, you know, where I was like, now we can kind of realize that, you know, what, what seemed like, what always seemed like normal wasn't really normal for everybody. And what always seemed to work never really probably worked for everybody. And, um, in that ways, you know, it, it's kind of nice to be able to call things by their own name and then be able to, to go about the, the hard work of trying to make them, them better for everybody. You described the process of putting the studio together and, and effectively like teaching yourself how to produce and, and, and relearning to record as, as having fun, as, you know, as learning to have fun with the process. But, um, how is it possible to have fun? How is it possible to deal with the subject matter that you're dealing with and not just completely wallow it? I think when I was down here in the studio recording by myself, I I just was really leaning into the notion that I was making a document that would I would then somehow be able to take out into the world or send out into the world and people would be able to interact with it. And this was kind of like my way uh, in the long game of convincing myself that I wasn't alone. Sending this out to the world, having these songs kind of move people and mean different things for them, and then eventually getting to kind of hear about, you know, how these songs play into other people's lives, how they intersect with their own experiences, maybe in ways that are different than they, they are for me, but just as, as valid. I just really felt I had a sense of mission, I think, at times that this was going to be a, a work of art, for lack of a, you know, to use a grandiose term, that that would ultimately connect me with people Um though at the time I was making it, it was, it was really isolated and it kind of mirrors the whole function of, of art, uh, as I understand it, you know, you, you make it, the process is yours, right? And this process, the recording process was, was my journey and was mine. And I, and I, I came to really love that process, but the product I was really hoping was for everybody and i'm i've been sitting on the product for a long time and i've been really waiting with bated breath to kind of share it with everybody and i'm so excited that it's going to come out and hopefully it it helps people hopefully it continues to help me you know in 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 new ways sharing it with folks so i'm just i'm relieved to normally i kind of grieve the end of the process because it's 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 like the end of the part that's for me, but um, this one I'm I'm just so eager to share, and I, I feel like there's there's new things coming because of that process, and I'm I'm really excited about it. 